Welcome to the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. You can make it happen, and there are more and more communities, and we all go under the name of the environmental justice movement, and we're fighting for our lives, fighting for our communities. All it takes is people power. It's all alive. It's all connected. It's all intelligent. It's all relatives. Scientists tell us that concern with the environment will no longer be just one of many issues in this new century. It will move to center stage. It will become the context of everything, of our lives, our businesses, our politics. We are, in fact, moving from the information age to the age of biology. In this series, The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature, we salute the Bioneers, the biological pioneers who are working with nature to heal nature, honoring both traditional native wisdom and modern scientific knowledge, restoring the earth by changing the world. What if the exhaust pipe of your car emptied right into the car's interior? Or what if the pollution generated by industries were piped back into their boardrooms? From a global perspective, that's exactly what we're doing to ourselves. Biologically speaking, what goes around comes around. There's no longer anywhere on planet Earth that is safe from toxic pollution. But from a more local perspective, the situation is not nearly so straightforward. Why? Because the distribution of pollution is anything but equal on the ground. Hurricane Katrina unmasked the extreme environmental inequities of class and race that divide American society. The disaster of Katrina revealed a second disaster in slow motion, the everyday chronic reality that low-income communities and communities of color tend to live in places with qualitatively greater environmental hazards. Katrina also showed how these communities are more likely to be underserved by government and private relief agencies before, during, and after environmental calamities. In other words, money talks and race matters. Environmental justice movements have arisen around the world to support historically disenfranchised communities to stop being used as industrial dumping grounds and sacrifice zones. From Bolivia and Indonesia to Louisiana's Cancer Alley, New York's South Bronx, and California's Richmond and Hunter's Point, they've been tirelessly organizing to change a system that generates mountains of both poison and injustice. The larger context is that low-income communities and communities of color are the environmental canaries in the coal mine for all of us. Putting hazards in someone else's backyard only creates more hazards for society at large. Addressing these deep injustices benefits us all. Join us for the next half hour as we explore Green Collar Justice, Another World is Possible, with Omar Freya of Green Worker Cooperatives and Justin Green, founder of Build It Green. My name is Neil Harvey. I'll be your host. Welcome to the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. When we say another world is possible, you know, what is the world that we're really living in right now and how can we really understand it in order to move to that next point? First thing that I think we really need to understand is where does all this stuff come from? You know, these lights that are burning in the room right now, when the light switch goes on, where does the power come from? Where does the water go after you flush it down the toilet? The materials that you rely on, where does that stuff come from? And all the things that you don't want, the waste, where does it go? Well, I come from one of those neighborhoods where a lot of this stuff goes. 
Omar Freya comes from New York City's South Bronx, a front line of environmental injustice. The area is plagued by polluting industries, by poverty, high unemployment, and deliberate neglect. In response, the community is producing some of the nation's most innovative environmental and social initiatives, which Omar has helped lead. He was a founding board member and program director of the group Sustainable South Bronx. He has served as board chair of the New York City Environmental Justice Alliance, bringing together almost 20 of the city's grassroots organizations. In 2003, he founded the organization Green Worker Cooperatives to incubate environmentally friendly, worker-owned cooperatives in the South Bronx. At the age of 33, he's transforming an urban riskscape into a landscape of positive possibility. Omar Freya spoke at a recent Bioneers conference in California. One of the things that we really need to understand is that we live in a wasteful society. Everyone knows that. But at the end of the day, where does the waste go? A wasteful society needs a dumping ground. You know, consider that your mantra. There are communities that are treated as the, like the steam release valve on a pressure cooker. You know, without that steam release valve, a pressure cooker blows up. So places like the South Bronx, Richmond, uh, California, right here across the bay, uh, Bayview-Hunters Point, right down in San Francisco, where are those steam release valves that make it possible for the lights to be turned on, for people to drive here in their cars, for the water to be flushed down the drain? That's, what, that's our purpose, and that's what many, many people actually see us as. But, of course, real people live there. I come from the South Bronx. I grew up in the 80s in the era of crack. It was the time when uh, buildings were still burning. Um, you know, abandoned lots were everywhere. But people still had hope, and the area has certainly come around in many ways. But one of the things that we're currently living with is trash. We're living with trash, and so are many other communities around the country. This neighborhood handles about half of New York City's sewage sludge. Eight million people. That's a lot of uh, stuff going down the drain, stuff going down the toilet. And more, if you think of whatever else gets flushed down the toilet. In the summertime, there's a horrible odor that's spread all over the place. And it's just, it's horrific and it smells horrible. It makes you want to run away. It makes plenty of people want to run away, but people can't afford to leave. So people are stuck living here uh, and stuck dealing with the smells. You know, and this is an environmental issue. It's an issue that people are living with. There are other issues uh, in the community in the area as well throughout the city. Power plants. Just a few years ago, uh, 10 power plants were rammed in low-income communities, all of them low-income communities, and overwhelmingly communities of color. Waste transfer stations. There are about 13,500 tons of construction and demolition debris. Well, New York produces about 50,000 tons of trash overall each and every single day. Pretty much all of that moves through these temporary transfer stations before it gets sent to some other community. All of those are in poor neighborhoods. Most of that, about half of that, are just in two neighborhoods. So the pollution issue is major, and the consequences are immense. We're talking about health. This is a public health issue. Environmental issues have always been a public health issue. When we talk about pollution, we're talking about asthma. We're talking about truck traffic. You're talking about one of the highest rates of asthma uh, in, in the country happening in the South Bronx with the national uh, rates for asthma hospitalizations at six times the national average. You know, you walk in, I've walked into classrooms and, and talked to teachers who told me they, they've done their own surveys in public elementary schools. You ask a kid, uh, go into a classroom and ask kids how many of them have asthma, and you see 30%, at least 30% of the hands in the classroom go up. And it can range even up to 60%. When Omar Freya looks out the window in the South Bronx, he mostly sees black and brown faces being wasted as surely as their environment is being wasted. 
It's no accident that polluting industries target communities like the South Bronx. Why? One reason is that they are the least able to resist. The reason why our communities wind up suffering from this state of affairs is that disposal follows the path of least resistance. You know, it's, it's very simple and very plain, but it's also very true. If you do not have the means to fight back or you have less of the means to fight back, it's like water. Garbage is like water. It goes where there's least resistance. And there are certain things that, that are regularly understood and accepted, things that affect citing decisions. And I'm really going through this because I feel a, a compulsion and a need to really explain why uh, communities are fighting, why it is that we talk about environmental racism and environmental classism, and why it is that we fight for environmental justice. Because this is the scenario. This is how a power plant or a garbage transfer station gets cited. You know about the land value. If the place is cheap, then someone's going to build something on it. If uh, the geography works, something's going to happen there. But if the community is able to say no, then it's not going to happen. But how is the community able to say no? If someone says to you that we're going to build a power plant in your neighborhood, think about what you would do. Who would you call? Would you be calling a lawyer? Is someone in your family a lawyer? Were there people that you met at some point in your life? There are plenty of people that are out there, but we live in a, such a segregated society, racially and class, uh, race and class segregation, that those resources aren't spread across the board evenly. Another circumstance that makes communities like the South Bronx vulnerable to polluting industries is jobs, or more accurately, the lack of jobs. Again, Omar Freya. Someone waves a carrot in front of a community and says, well, we want to build this power plant, you know, and we're going to bring jobs. Or we want to build this uh, warehouse distribution center. We're going to bring jobs or you name it, whatever the issue is, an oil refinery. We're going to bring jobs to the community. Well, those jobs are desperately needed. I mean, the South Bronx is uh, one of the poorest areas in the country. The Bronx is the poorest urban county in the United States. You know, in, uh, in our area, you know, unemployment rates are as high as 24 percent which is ridiculous. You know, the, the national average is, is a fraction of that. And, uh, you know, this is a situation that makes it so that people are desperate. They're desperate for work. So desperate people will, will undoubtedly say, okay, fine. Some people will. There are plenty of other people that won't, but some people will. Community Service Society in New York did a study a few years ago that said almost half of black men in New York City were out of work, jobless. You know, for Latino men, it's slightly less than that, about 42%. But these are really sad and, and atrocious conditions that we're living with. You know, we do want jobs. Undoubtedly, we need jobs. But we don't want jobs that kill us in the process. I mean, you want a job that gives you health insurance, not to protect you from the job itself, but to protect you from walking outside and getting hit by a car. And on top of that, when we hear companies say, you know, they have a job for us, uh, they have a job for us in a power plant, we say, get real, man. I mean, how many people work in a power plant? Six? Four of them are engineers? You know, public school system sucks. There aren't any, uh, any engineers coming out of, uh, you know, PS48 uh, in Hunts Point, at least not yet. You know, it's something that we'd like to see, but the public school system is one that has been getting slashed and burned left and right. You know, there's much more of an investment in sending people to war than there is an investment in public education. (laughs) 
to say we don't want jobs that kill people in the process, well, what is the alternative? How can we create these jobs? Well, we follow that same precautionary principle. We say an option is zero waste. You know, there's no need to, uh, to continue to throw everything out and, and just create uh, a handful of jobs at a landfill in some far-off distant land. Let's keep the stuff right here. There are plenty of jobs just sitting in that garbage can that wind up getting thrown into a dumpster and sent out somewhere else. You know, for every job, you can create 25 or 250 doing anything from recycling to reuse to remanufacturing. And the opportunities are there and the benefits are there. You're reducing waste, you're creating jobs, you're preserving any number of natural resources and you're minimizing all of the pollution and and all of the waste that went into pulling the raw materials out and cutting down the trees and strip mining the, uh, the mountains to get those materials in the first place. So there's plenty of opportunity there, but it's something that's been long ignored. Despite the debilitating health effects of living in toxic urban riskscapes, despite the burdens of class discrimination, racism, and the poverty that comes from high unemployment, communities are fighting back. More and more communities have been becoming more aware of the health threats to themselves as a result of all of these polluting facilities and have become more aware of the problems and as a result have been able to fight. You know, regardless of the resources, all it takes is people power. You get enough people in a room, you know, and enough skilled organizing, and you can stop anything from happening if you've got enough uh, awareness uh, ahead of time of a project. You know, you can make it happen, and there are more and more communities, and we all go under the name of the environmental justice movement, and we're fighting for our lives, fighting for our communities. It's hard to believe, but an astounding 94% of what our industrial society produces is waste. As Omar Freya correctly points out, the goal is a system that eliminates waste, and there are abundant opportunities to be found in reducing and eliminating that waste. When we return, we explore how people are beginning to transform waste into work, into green-collar justice. This is Green Collar Justice. Another world is possible. I'm Neil Harvey. You're listening to The Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. There's more on Green Collar Justice at our website. To download a free podcast, visit the radio pages at Bioneers.org. Omar Freya of Green Worker Cooperatives asserts that by reducing waste, we can create jobs and preserve the environment. That's exactly what Justin Green is doing in New York City's Queens. Queens is another community on the front line of environmental injustice. To address both jobs and the environment, he started a different kind of construction business, a deconstruction business. We spoke with Justin Green about his venture. We run a store. It's basically a warehouse for salvaged and surplus building materials, and it's an essential step in reducing the waste stream that is produced in New York City and in the U.S. We're trying to also create a marketplace where there was none before for these salvaged materials. So at this point in time, If a construction demolition waste contractor 
wanted to salvage their materials, there's no way they could do it because there's no marketplace for it. So they'd be stuck with all these doors or all these windows and have no place to go with it. So what we're doing is really important in, number one, just pioneering a marketplace and creating the foundations for altering the whole process of demolition and construction that takes place. Because once the marketplace is there, once the infrastructure is there, then the change can occur. But before then, it's not possible for you know, people to salvage stuff. It's a growing sort of movement. It's called deconstruction. It's called building material reuse. And Habitat for Humanity runs over 200 stores that take in donations of materials, salvageable and reusable materials. There are also other independent stores all across the country. So it's becoming a viable option for your construction needs to go to these these outlets to find the materials. So it's beyond, you know, recycling. Reuse, obviously, is preferable. Not throwing it away, not doing the renovation is the most preferable. But if you're, if you're going to do the renovation, you know, buying reused materials is obviously the, the most preferable environmental method. The 18,000-square-foot deconstruction store Justin Green helped start deals in salvaged materials. All are of high quality, and some of what he sells are even valuable antiques. We asked Justin Green how he got started. I've been involved in construction and in low-income housing and also just interested in the environment. I've worked as an environmental educator. You know, I've dumpster-dived. I mean, basically, it comes from being a dumpster-diver and seeing all the, the incredible amount of waste being produced in New York City. We have an 18,000-square-foot store, and we have three employees, three-and-a-half employees. Um, but ideally, I mean, across the country, the operations are much bigger. You know, we're talking 14 people. They run crews, which we do have, of actually going to buildings and removing the materials carefully, process of deconstruction versus demolition, where the crew goes in and pulls doors off carefully, pulls light fixtures out carefully, uh, pulls the wood floor up without breaking the tongue and groove, and brings them back to our store. In uh, building material reuse centers across the country, you're talking 14 employees, you know, many, many employees working on this and uh, creating a whole new economy where there, before there's just landfill, you know, there's bulldozers. Now we're creating uh, an economy where, you know, two people could take down a home with a backhoe in two days. We're talking about, you know, five, six people employed over a month disassembling the home piece by piece. So job creation in addition to protecting the environment. And uh, in some ways, economics are going to push people to this model in the long term because landfill gets filled up and the expenses of landfill keep going up and up. And it is a successful model in the areas where it's been legislated into existence by restrictions on the amount of C&D waste produced by demolition contractors. Justin Green has seen the future. Like energy efficiency and fuel efficiency, it's a matter of when, not if, government starts providing widespread incentives for building material reuse centers. Local governments are already taking legislative steps in California. But, Omar Freya says, that's still only part of the change that needs to happen. He recently founded Sustainable South Bronx's first green worker cooperative. The idea is to create green-collar jobs around reuse and businesses that are owned by the workers. He characterizes the venture as a worker-owned Home Depot for used stuff. 
It's the truest sense of the idea of workers owning the means of production or service. You know, production or service, either one. But really, workers owning their own workplace, a true democracy where workers are empowered to really decide their own fates because we all work somewhere and you want to have a say in your own workplace. It's where democracy can actually happen. But there are many benefits to a worker cooperative. It retains wealth in a community. You don't have someone making 100 times or 1,000 times what the lowest paid worker makes who winds up living maybe 10 states away or even in another country. It empowers workers because workers have the opportunity to have a voice in their own lives. It enables accountability because it's not enough to say, you know, we don't want a smokestack in the neighborhood. True accountability is if there's going to be a smokestack, then the smokestack needs to be pointed into the boardroom. (laughs) Because it's in the boardroom where those decisions happen. And if it's not happening there, if the workers are from there, then no worker wants to gas their own neighborhood because people in the supermarket will be pissed off at you if they see you. (laughs) Worker cooperatives do not leave town and they avoid layoffs. And it teaches democracy. Where do we actually practice democracy in this so-called democracy? You know, it's not something that merely happens four times a year. There are plenty of worker co-ops in the United States. Plenty of you in the Bay Area know at least three of them. Rainbow, Arismendi, and Good Vibrations. There are others around the country. Burley makes bicycles, Northland Poster Collective, Cooperative Home Care Associates is in my neck of the woods in the South Bronx. 800, 850 workers, uh, all, all of them uh, Dominican, Caribbean, other Caribbean, African-American, uh, Latina and African-American women, home health care aides who have raised the standard for work, uh, work practices in the home health care field. And they're in the South Bronx. Uh, So the movement for worker cooperatives is growing. It's something that we intend to build and spread all over the country because we do believe that we need an alternative to our economic system and we need an alternative to our current environmental system. Indeed, the high economic costs resulting from our radical degradation of the environment are coming home to roost. So are the severe social costs. Omar Freya says Hurricane Katrina, an early impact of global warming, gave us a coming attraction of just how grave the consequences can be and how deeply unfair. The cities are full of poor people. They're full of people of color. That don't count. And what has happened on the Gulf Coast, what has happened in New Orleans, along the area that was, uh, was Cancer Alley, and still is Cancer Alley because of all the, the high rates of cancer, from all the oil refineries that, that dot the, the uh, Gulf Coast, those people don't really count. And all of the people who live in Cancer Alley you know, are primarily black. These are poor black people. And those people have been suffering for a long time, you know, way before Katrina ever hit, and have been fighting. You know, they've been fighting for their land to keep their land, and they've been fighting against these oil refineries. Immense environmental justice fights that have gone on record for ages. I mean, clearly, it was kind of the first time that anyone had really talked about, you know, a clear sign that global warming was happening, that you had this hurricane that hit that was previously thought of as a low-category hurricane that became instantly supercharged. But I heard something that I'd never heard before in reference to people, and that was in the United States, now we're talking about environmental refugees. And this was a phrase that I'd only heard before amongst the environmental circles like this, 
where people would talk about what happens in a few years when global warming will affect Africa, you know, or will affect Latin America. Or we talk about a flooding that happens after an, a torrential rainstorm that wipes out a village somewhere in a place that's been deforested. But now we're talking about environmental refugees here in the United States. Those same conditions are now here. And they're here because of all the damage that we've done collectively to the environment. But it hits us dramatically in the communities that have the least solid infrastructure. We're really talking about what happens to the communities, to those people that for too long have been disenfranchised, that have been at the bottom, literally at the bottoms of society, uh, who have the least access to resources and have been the dumping grounds for far too long. And it's in those communities where if we're really going to invest in anything, you know, it has to be in those communities. Places like the South Bronx, like Cancer Alley, like Bayview-Hunters Point, any number of different places. That is where the focus really, really needs to be. We all know the saying that a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Well, we have many weak links, and they're in communities, low-income communities and communities of color. Those are going to be the places where, as conditions, environmental conditions get worse, you will see the chain break. As the chain breaks, courageous visionaries like Omar Freya and Justin Green are showing us that another world is not only possible, it's in motion. They know that environmental justice means a lot more than not dumping on the weakest and most vulnerable among us. In today's world, they say, we are all New Orleanians. Putting hazards in someone else's backyard only creates more hazards for all of us. And people power is what it really takes to make another world possible. Green Collar Justice. Another world is possible. To explore the latest resources related to this program or to order a copy of this show, visit Bioneers.org or call 877-246-6337. Practical solutions and social innovations for our most pressing environmental and social challenges can also be found online at Bioneers.org. Choose from articles, news releases, blogs, event calendars, books, CDs, podcasts, and DVDs. You can learn more about the Bioneers through their annual conference and by becoming a member. To register and join online, go to Bioneers.org or call 877-246-6337. The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature is a production of Collective Heritage Institute. Executive producer, Kenny Ausubel. Written by Kenny Ausubel and Neil Harvey. Senior producer, Neil Harvey. Managing producer, Stephanie Welch. Production assistants, Ginny McGinn and Marita Prandoni. Distribution is by WFMT Radio Network. Original recordings provided by Conference Recording Service. Our theme music is taken from the album Journey Between by Baca Beyond and used by permission of Hannibal Records, a Ryko Disc label. Additional music was made available by Sounds True at SoundsTrue.com. For more music information, please visit Bioneers.org. The opinions expressed in the Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature radio series are those of the presenters and are not necessarily those of Collective Heritage Institute, the underwriters, or this radio station. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. I invite you to join the Bioneers in improving the environment by changing the world. Thank you.
This is program number 0907.